Hi, everyone. I'm Alistair Stevens, and welcome to There and Back Again. Welcome, in fact, to the 20th session of There and Back Again, which seems somehow oddly significant. I wish that it had lined up better with a, a more important chapter of the book. Certainly, we're going to take a step back from, from high epic this week in our discussion of The Fellowship of the Ring, A Shortcut to Mushrooms, the fourth chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring. But there is still, I think, a lot to discuss and if nothing else, we get to meet Farmer Maggot, who is, I think, pretty universally beloved. As I mentioned in last week's session, this is going to be a slightly different episode of There and Back Again because Chapter 4 is short. And with, with, with dizzying foresight and perspicacity, I thought it wise when I was setting up the production schedule for There and Back Again to include a little padding, to include just a little wiggle room here in the production schedule. So this week, we're going to talk about Chapter 4, which is a short chapter, and then we're going to have a little open Q&A. I have... A handful of topics, actually, which are, are just fascinating and brilliant and things which I haven't discussed at all before. So I'm very much looking forward to talking about those. But first, we're going to talk about the Hobbit's journey into the lands of Farmer Maggot and then all the way to the ferry and the introduction of the fourth member of our little Hobbit party of adventurers. It is so great to have everybody here. It's it's an interesting time of day, I have to say. It is 11 o'clock central here, 11, 11 a.m. central. So we have a wonderful connection all across the world. We have people in Europe who are joining us for dinner. We have people on the East Coast who are joining us for an early lunch, and we have people on the West Coast who are joining us for breakfast. 11 a.m. Central seems to be a pretty good time of day to do this kind of thing, so I'm very glad that you could all make it here. We have Rachel and Chris and Daniel and Lauren and Nikki and, and Fina is here. Just a bunch of wonderful people. Hanging out with you all is... It's just the highlight of my week, you guys. It's it's pretty good. It doesn't get much better than this, particularly when we're talking about the Lord of the Rings. So we begin chapter four, he said, jumping straight in and wasting not a moment. We begin chapter four with the hobbits awaking after their encounter with the elves the previous evening. The elves have already departed, because of course that is what elves do, but we learn that they have left behind breakfast. Pippin and Sam have already been awake for quite some time. <laughs> we get this lovely little line that, uh, that Pippin says that the bread is almost as good as it was last night. He didn't want to leave any for Frodo, but Sam insisted. It's a wonderful piece of characterization right there. Frodo is already, however, somewhat anxious. He's already feeling some of the weight, some of the pressure. And we see here what will be ultimately something of a constant division. It doesn't really matter what happens to our little intrepid group of hobbits, our little comic troop of hobbits. There is always going to be something unique about Frodo and Frodo's experience. And in part, this is simply because he is so much older. He is so much older than the others. But it's also, of course, the burden of being the ring bearer. It's also being the driving force behind this entire endeavor. Pippin's kind of along for the ride at this point. Sam is here out of loyalty, but Frodo is the one who is making all of this happen. And thus, the burden of his quest falls more heavily, more directly, more specifically on him than it does on the other hobbits. And we will just continue to see that. We'll see it through this chapter as we have, first of all, our interaction here between the hobbits in the Elf Glade, then later with Farmer Maggot, then ultimately when we get to the ferry, we're going to see Frodo I think, struggle a little with the weight of his quest. And of course, that weight is only going to increase as we move forward. But much more importantly than all of that, we get a little bit of Sam and we get a little bit of the elves. This is our first slide for this week. It's going to be very dangerous, Sam. It's already dangerous. Most likely, neither of us will come back. If you don't come back, sir, then I shan't, that's certain, said Sam. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said, I never mean to. I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon. And if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. They laughed. Who are they? 
And what are you talking about? The elves, sir. We had some talk last night, and they seemed to know you were going away, and I didn't see the use of denying it. Wonderful folk, elves, sir, wonderful. They are, said Frodo. Do you like them still, now you've had a closer view? They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They're quite different from what I expected, so old and young and so gay and sad as it were. Frodo looked at Sam rather startled, half expecting to see some outward sign of the odd change that seemed to have come over him. It did not sound like the voice of old Sam Gamgee that he thought he knew, but it looked like the old Sam Gamgee sitting there, except that his face was unusually thoughtful. Sam is... As we said before, as we are now obliged to say in every single session of There and Back Again, even in sessions in which Sam does not appear, Sam is the best. This is Frodo struggling with the crossing of thresholds. And I guess we should preface this with a brief discussion about Shoto's journey, uh, Shoto's, excuse me, Frodo's journey out of the Shire. Uh, because it isn't a simple transition. We've had him leave Bag End, and we've had him venture out on the road, and we've had the run-in with the Black Rider, two run-ins with the Black Riders already, and then we've had a full-throated encounter with the elves. This is an actual, literal fairy encounter. Gildard takes the unprecedented step of escorting Frodo and Pippin and Sam into the elven glade and giving them shelter, giving them succor. This is huge. This was one of the pivotal turning points in The Hobbit when when uh, when Bilbo and the dwarves failed to intrude upon this kind of elven feast, this kind of elven celebration. So we've had this, this comprehensive entry into the realm of fairy, but now here we are back again in the mundane world, back again still in the Shire. And we're going to have another run-in with the Black Rider, and then we're going to have Farmer Maggot, and then we're going to have another run-in with the Black Rider, then we're going to have the fairy. Then next week, in, in the next session, we're going to see what happens to Frodo on the other side of the river. And all of this is to say that his exit from the Shire is not clean. It is not tidy. It is not simple. He doesn't walk peacefully to the border of the Shire and then cross into adventure as, importantly, Bilbo did. There's none of that here. The sharp delineations between civil and wild, certainly the West and the wild that we saw in The Hobbit, but even to a lesser extent, the Shire and the West, if we kind of see this as a spectrum of, of civility, the Shire is the most civil, the West is less civil, but still pretty safe. And then after you cross the Misty Mountains into the wild, things get pretty barbaric, indeed pretty, pretty feral and savage on the other side of the Misty Mountains. Frodo doesn't have that kind of experience at all. He is constantly tugged away from the Shire while still being in the Shire, and then pulled back to the Shire after having these somewhat exceptional experiences. He keeps flirting, flitting between the supernatural realm and the natural realm, and that is apparently a little exhausting for him. I think we can be somewhat empathetic about that. Oh, Rachel here in the YouTube chat says, I love the statement of them being above his likes and dislikes. And Shane says, Sam is changed by fairy, even as the dwarves were in The Hobbit. He gets insight even if he doesn't mean to. That's a great observation, Shane. Yes, tying together these encounters, though they are, of course, very different, they do serve in effect a similar purpose. Some of this transit through the Shire and certainly the encounter with Gildor and the elves it does serve a similar thematic function as the entry into Mirkwood for the hobbits and the, uh, for, for the hobbit and the dwarves in the hobbit. Yes. Angela says nothing is simple for Frodo. He doesn't just walk to the mountain and drop the ring into the lava. One does not simply walk, etc. Yes. Good. Rachel says they're the most civil, but they have little idea of good and evil. Those who have better ideas of good and evil are less civil. What does that say? Elves accepted. 
Well, well, I'm most interested, perhaps, Rachel, in your exclusion of elves there. I think elves actually um, are actually rather representative of that core idea. And we will definitely talk about this. One of the big topics that I'm going to hit during the Q&A portion of today's session is about the Shire and about its its somewhat insular nature. And I think that one of the things that we'll definitely highlight there is its approach to good and evil. It is a place of small things. It is a place of small goods and small evils. I mean, as great as Sam is, he is still kind of a small G good. He's never going to change the world. He's not like Aragorn or Gandalf or, or Faramir, for example. He's just a hobbit. And that means that the scale of good, good and evil within the Shire is that much smaller. We'll talk more about that later. I'm just realizing that the slide is still up, but I have to keep the slide up because there are still things to talk about. I definitely want to parse everything that, that Sam says here. Don't you leave him, they said to me. Leave him, I said. I never mean to. I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon, and if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said. They laughed. Okay, so this is, this is as clear a direct account as we're going to get of Sam's conversations with the elves, or Sam's conversation with the elves. But look ahead to his next line. We had some talk last night. They seemed to know you were going away, and I didn't see the use of denying it. Wonderful folk, elves, sir. Wonderful. I would also notice the repetition of elves, sir. This is one of, of those two words in that combination are one of Sam's favorite kind, uh, favorite uh, common phrases. That he just, if we were playing the in-universe drinking game, you know, every time Sam says elves, sir, take a shot. Definitely take a shot, except definitely don't take a shot. You won't survive it. What's interesting here, though, is that the elves know that Frodo was leaving. We know this, of course, from, from Gilder's conversation with Frodo last night. But the elves in general know that Frodo is leaving. And Sam says, I didn't see the use of denying it. But then if we look back to his actual account of the conversation, don't you leave him, they said to me. There is uh, an imperative there. Don't you leave him. Now, we can assume that Sam is translating a little for the elves. They probably didn't say it in quite such blunt terms. But if he's translating into those terms, we can assume that the elves were pretty forceful. Don't you leave him, they said. Leave him, I said. I never mean to. I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon. Why are the elves in general, because he talks about them in the plural, why are the elves so committed to the idea of Sam accompanying Frodo? Why is it so important? Then when he says, if any of the black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with, I said, they laughed. I am pretty comfortable, fairly certain here, that this was not mockery, that this was not derision, that this was not even necessarily amusement. I'm fairly certain that the laughter of the elves is delight. Certainly that seems true to the elves that we met, the tra-la-la-lolly elves that we met back in the pages of The Hobbit, and of course, Gildor's kind of entry into this scene. He is joyous, and he is playful, and he is teasing in a delightful way, and elves seem to have this powerful relationship with delight, with enjoyment. They are fascinated by the world around them and, and love it fiercely, and this seems to be to me at least, delight from the elves in, in response to Sam's, Sam's commitment, Sam's loyalty, Sam's steadfastness. And then we see the, uh, the next line from Sam here. They seem a little above my likes and dislikes, so to speak. Although I guess we should probably frame this through Frodo. Do you like them still now you've had a closer view? It doesn't seem to me that Frodo is asking, well... You know, elves, by reputation, elves are pretty great, but, you know, you meet them in person and they just and never meet your heroes, Sam, is what I'm saying. Never meet your heroes. It doesn't seem to be that. 
I read this as Frodo being very protective of Sam's desire, of Sam's romantic side, of Sam's love of elves and story. That seems to me to be what Frodo is, is leaning at here. Oh, you've had this great experience. You were looking forward to it. Did it, did it live up to your expectations? Was it good, Sam? Are, are you still happy about elves? And are you, by extension, still happy to be on the road with me? Because this was, of course, the, the promise, the pact that Frodo made with Sam. I'll take you with me. We'll go meet elves. That was the implicit promise that he made to Sam when Sam was recruited by Gandalf. This is, this is the first turning point here. And if this had been disastrous for Sam, if he had met elves and been horrified or afraid or, or just unimpressed, it would have spoken very ill of their journey together and of Frodo's promise to Sam, his commitment to Sam, his provision for Sam. So Frodo here is checking in, but we get this wonderful um, response. They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young and so gay and sad, as it were. So there are two responses here from Sam. They seem a bit above my likes. <laughs> two responses from Sam, which in, in classic fashion, Tolkien separates not with the, the speech attribution. He doesn't, he doesn't take the break in thought to attribute this dialogue to Sam. Rather, he prompts us to see, to question, to doubt the ways in which these two thoughts are, are engaged with one another. A more traditional approach would, see, would be, they seem a bit about my likes and dislikes, so to speak. It doesn't seem to matter what I think about them, answered Sam slowly. They're quite different from what I expected. So we have the first thought, then the dialogue attribution, then the second thought. But instead, what we get is, they seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. That's thought one. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young and so gay and sad, as it were. That's thought two. In what way are elves above Sam, or certainly above his likes and dislikes? Well, we've talked before about the ways in which elves are natural. We talk about elves, we talk about fairies, we talk about fairy with a capital F as supernatural, because that's generally how they interact with, with mortal men, that, that we believe ourselves to be of the world, and, and elves and ghosts and goblins and fairies and all of these supernatural things exist kind of out on the fringes of the world. But Tolkien is emphatic throughout his entire, entire body of work. The elves are more natural than men. They exist here. They exist in Arda. They are of Middle-earth. They are never going to go anywhere else. They are the most natural component here. Men are going to pass off into their eternal reward. Hobbits, too, are apparently going to pass off into their eternal reward. But elves are of the world. Frodo might as well have asked Sam, so Sam, now you've met a mountain, what do you think? Now you've met a forest, what do you think? Hey, that river, did it live up to your expectations? You're feeling pretty good about rivers in general? In fact, not just that river, but all rivers. The concept of flowing water, Sam, how do you feel about it? Sam has no opinion on the concept of flowing water, on mountains, on forests, on elves, because they are simply a part of the natural world. He, they, they, when I say he has no opinion, of course he has an opinion, but his opinion is not definitive to them. His opinion is not what matters. They exist anyway. They are a part of the natural world anyway. His opinion, though, when he gives it, they are quite different from what I expected. So old and young and so gay and sad, as it were. I read that, as it were, as a little moment of 
bashfulness from Sam, a little, a little moment of self-awareness from Sam. So old and young and so gay and sad, we're almost approaching sailing, sailing, sailing. We're almost approaching poetic Sam Gamgee, which is, of course, my favorite Sam Gamgee. We're leaning in that direction. And then I always read that as him kind of pulling himself together and saying, well, wait, wait, as it were, you know, just to distance myself a little from, from those thoughts, or perhaps to say, this is my interpretation and it is incomplete, as it were. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so gay and sad. So we're prompted to ask, what was it that Sam expected? What was it that Sam thought to find here among the elves? And in what way is there relative youth and age and a relative happiness and unhappiness? In what sense are those two things in conflict? Are they in conflict, in fact? Did he expect to find them young, but they were young and old? Did he expect to find them old, but hey, they were also weirdly young? We don't know at this point. We don't have enough information to parse it. Luckily, you guys, we're going to get a lot more of Sam and the elves as we move forward. Frodo recognizes the shift in his friend, in his, in his servant, um, to borrow the uh, rather dismissive description of Sam from In the Rings of Power in the Third Age, from, uh, from Unfinished Tale, uh, from, from the Silmarillion, rather. Um, he recognizes the change, because this may be the first time that Frodo has seen it. We are already cued to expect this, because we've had sailing, sailing, sailing. We've had Sam speaking in defense of elves. We've had Sam speaking in defense of wonder and magic already in the book. But Frodo perhaps hasn't so much. Frodo perhaps hasn't had quite that same experience. So this is a stark transition for Frodo. And here he sees, well, no, Sam has been transformed. The passage into fairy did what the passage into fairy always does. Did, as Shane pointed out, what the passage into fairy did to the dwarves back in The Hobbit. Sam has been transformed by this. He has crossed the threshold and Frodo looks at him expecting to see some outward sign and there isn't one, except that Sam looks unusually thoughtful. And I don't even interpret that last line as being in any way critical of Sam. Sam is a blue collar hobbit. Sam is focused on the task at hand. He doesn't have a lot of time perhaps for thought in that sense. He doesn't have a lot of time for, for preoccupation, certainly because he's rather preoccupied with occupation. But here he is thinking he is his perspective has been changed his 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 view of the world has been irrevocably altered and this is the first step down what will be for sam a very long road yeah um jackie says i wonder if he expected the elf singing the valley is jolly like from bilbo's stories of rivendell that yes i mean i don't know how i would feel if i expected tralalalali elves and i got albereth gilthoniel elves i don't think i would be disappointed I think I would be pretty impressed, actually. You know, the thing about the albums is their second album is just so much better than their first. The first album's all tra la lolly. Yeah. Um, good, good. Yes, uh, Rachel's calling out here too. His perception is colored by Bilbo's stories. These are very different elves. Um, yes, that, that's fair. I guess the question is, to what degree were Bilbo's stories of elves the stories that he related in the pages of The Hobbit, in There and Back Again. Were, were those the stories that he was telling? Because Sam, also back in the ivy bush, has a sense of, um, sorry, not back in the ivy bush, back in the Green Dragon, has a sense of um, the elves going into the West and fading. He has a sense of them. They're leaving our world. That's when we get sailing, sailing, sailing. He has a sense of the tragedy of the elves. So he knows that they are old, 
presumably, he knows that they are presumably immortal. That seems to be fairly common knowledge or would at least be mythic knowledge in that sense. And he knows that they're leaving. So he kind of, when he talks about them, he has a sense of the sadness. And it's unclear, I suppose, whether he's talking about the sadness from his perspective or the sadness from the elven perspective. But certainly there is that that kind of tint of, of despair, of, of not despair. Despair is exactly and precisely the very wrongest word that I could have used. Um, not despair. They had this quiet tragedy, this quiet passing into, into memory. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, let me see. Excellent. The YouTube chat is, is just bubbling along. This is great. Um, yes. Emily says, I read that line that Sam expecting them to be old, but young and sad, but also gay. Read the surprise to be how much they are both so gay and sad, so old and young. That I like very much, Emily, actually. I like that very, very much. Yes, that we're actually focusing on the wrong part of the sentence. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so gay and sad, as it were. So not different than he expected, but simply more in every possible dimension than he expected. I like that, too. That's very good. Okay. Yes, good, good. Uh, Austin says, sometimes even if you know what to expect, experience is different from the picture in your head. Yes, and, and Rachel says, intellectual knowledge has a different effect on the psyche than the stories we are steeped in as children. And Jackie, of course, elves are walking contradictions. That, that they are. So from this point on, we decide to, uh, we, we try to decide what it is that we're going to do next and how we are going to proceed from here. And we get this discussion. Shortcuts make long delays, argued Pippin. The country is rough around here, and there are bogs and all kinds of difficulties down in the Marish. I know the land in these parts. And if you're worrying about black riders, I can't see that it's any worse meeting them on the road than in a wood or a field. It's less easy to find people in the woods and fields, answered Frodo. And if you were supposed to be on the road, there is some chance you will, not be lo you will be looked for on the road and not off it. All right, said Pippin. I will follow you into every bog and ditch, but it is hard. I had counted on passing the golden perch at Stock before sundown. The best beer in the East Farthing, or used to be. It's a long time since I tasted it. That settles it, said Frodo. Shortcuts make delays, but inns make longer ones. At all costs, we must keep you away from the golden perch. We want to get to Bucklebury before dark. What do you say, Sam? I'll go along with you, Master Frodo, said Sam, in spite of private misgivings and a deep regret for the best beer in the East Farthing. We're pulled back again from elves and magic and wonder into what Tolkien described as hobbitry. This is a page of hobbits being hobbits. This is a page of hobbits just, just interacting. This, this hobbity banter that we get from time to time. And this is, again, to emphasize this return to the mundane. Well, we're being pursued by this malevolent force that may be supernatural. I don't know for sure, but there was sniffing. And I guess my ring really wanted me to put it on. And this is very, very strange. But we definitely can't go to a pub, Pippin. That would be crazy. That's where the delay lies. So instead, we're going to cut across country. We're going to go out into the, the bogs of the Marish. We're going to try and cut across this rough terrain rather than taking the road. And here again, we may get just a hint of Frodo's underlying motivation. Because of the presence of the ring in the story, we are constantly tempted to look at every decision that Frodo makes, and particularly those decisions which he then proceeds to rationalize, as being somewhat suspect. To what degree is Frodo making this decision, and to what degree is Frodo being influenced to make this decision? Now, there is no reference to the ring, which is usually the point at which the ring's intrusion into the, into the narrative begins. The first thought is, his fingers twitched toward the ring. He thought once again of his magic ring. Hey, Bilbo had that really cool magic ring that one time, remember? We're inclined toward the ring as, as a preface to the ring's presence in the narrative. But here again, we have to question, 
what it is that is guiding Frodo's footsteps, what, what it is that is guiding his, his movement through the story. Because lest we forget, as he descended the hill toward Bagshot Row back in the last chapter, he almost, almost ran into the Black Rider right there and then. That, that would have been the end of the story. That would have been the end of the world. I mean, potentially, literally the end of the world. But luck or something, some kind of, of movement kept him away from the Black Rider. And then again on the road, as he is considering putting on the ring, he's about to do it five more seconds than he would have put on the ring. And again, the story would have been over. His hand is reaching for the chain and the Black Rider leaves, just leaves at a trot too, with some haste too. The Black Rider just goes. Now Frodo, and, and then of course the intrusion of the elves into the second encounter with the Black Rider, which at least Frodo is not responsible for. That was just the elves showing up. It doesn't seem as though that's a function of Frodo's luck, even if we take the most generous possible interpretation of that, that good fortune. Here, he's trying to decide what to do, and there are two paths. And it seems to me that Pippin is making a fairly good argument, actually. Well, okay, you know, we should be hasty. We should be swift. We know that there's a bar and we can get there before sundown. That would presumably be some kind of safe. We know, of course, from our privileged vantage point that it probably wouldn't be safe, but at the same time, or perhaps it would, or perhaps it would be safe here in the Shire where the Nazgul are diminished. But Frodo wants to take this different course. And well, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better, right? That's, that's the constant refrain that we get from these, these turning points within the story. Um, <laughs> Saved Girl 309 says, better than rain or a rhythmic brook is a mug of beer inside this tuck. Excellent. Poor Pippin, says Austin, and his loss of the best beer in the East Farthing. Pippin is my undergrad roommates. Yeah, I remember being an undergrad. I would have gone a long way for the best beer in the East Farthing. Yes. And Lady Sorka calls out again. Yes, this is, this is a great observation and one that we absolutely have to remember. Oh, Pippin, she says, sometimes so obviously the equivalent of an older teenager. Pippin is so young. This is such, a, such an adventure for him. He doesn't feel the burden that Frodo feels. Excellent. Good. Okay, let's, um, let's keep going because we have to get to uh, actually our first, our first brief uh, break because having decided that they're going to, um, to leave the road behind and, and cross the Marish on foot, we eventually end up a little fatigued and they find out that the elves have left for them a gift. They went on for perhaps another couple of miles. Then the sun gleamed out of ragged clouds again and the rain lessened. It was now past midday and they felt it was high time for lunch. They halted under an elm tree. Its leaves, though fast turning yellow, were still thick and the ground at its feet were still fairly, was fairly dry and sheltered. When they came to make their meal, they found the elves had filled their bottles with a clear drink, pale golden in color. It had the scent of a honey made of many flowers and was wonderfully refreshing. Very soon they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. The last few miles they felt would soon be behind them. Frodo propped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Sam and Pippin sat near, and they began to hum and then to sing softly. Ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow, and many miles be still to go. But under a tall tree I will lie, and let the clouds go sailing by. Ho, 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 they began again louder. They stopped short suddenly. Frodo sprang to his feet. A long-drawn wail came down the wind like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rose and fell and ended on a high piercing note. Even as they sat and stood, as if suddenly frozen, it was answered by another cry, fainter and further off, but no less chilling to the blood. There was then a silence, broken only by the sound of the wind in the leaves. 
for what it's worth, one of the creepier oppositions that we're going to get. And this is an example, too, of something that that uh, Tolkien does rarely, but generally does to devastating effect. Tolkien is a master of metaphor. Tolkien can weave a metaphor that can communicate unimaginable depth to pretty much any reader. Sometimes, though, he does the opposite. Sometimes he sets us up for the metaphor and then delivers an anti-metaphor, uh, a piece of, of literalism. He, he delivers the literal truth of the thing. We're going to see perhaps the most powerful version of this when we get to Tom Bombadil, I guess, not next week, actually, but the week after, not, not in the next session, but the, the following session. But here we see another example. Frodo sprang to his feet. A long-drawn wail came down the wind like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. In what way is the cry of some evil and lonely creature a simile? Because it's introduced with the word like. It is like unto the thing which it precisely is. I love how that, how that kind of slips through the armor because we are prepared for metaphor. We are prepared for poetry here, but instead we get the literal truth. We get exactly what we expect and that can pierce us deeply. It is a kind of a kind of mastery of metaphor that allows us to set metaphor aside. I completely, completely love it. Let's talk a little about the elves' uh, magic drink here. <laughs> um, their, their magical elf cordial, this uh, golden-colored uh, clear drink, the scent of a honey made from many flowers and was wonderfully refreshing. This is, of course, perfectly perfectly uh, compatible with our notion of elves and fairy. The, the food and drink of the elves is legendary because it is, in some sense, magical. Not magical in the sense that it was wrought by spellcraft, but rather that it is imbued with the living magic of the elves. And whenever I read this, whenever we get this, the scent of many flowers, I'm always reminded of Bilbo's first arrival at Rivendell as he looks down on the, the hidden valley of Rivendell and has that wonderful thought, hmm, smells like elves. And we questioned at the time, what do elves smell like? And there is, as I mentioned, you know, a, a brief passage deep, deep in Tolkien's Legendarium that might give us an account. But I think this is just as likely an answer to that question. What do elves smell like? A honey made of many flowers. Why not? Why not that? That would give us a sense, certainly, that the cordial is imbued with the power of the elves. It may not be the case that the cordial is, I guess, okay, so there are two, as Lady Storka says, elf, elf meatcraft is on point. Yes. Um, I like very much the, the ambiguity here. Are Frodo and Pippin and Sam drunk by the time that they stop? Well, maybe. You can certainly read it that way, right? They, they, have these, um, they have these drinks. Very soon they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. A little Dutch courage here, a little, little you know, Rivendell courage, I suppose, uh, infusing the, the hobbits and, and driving them forward. The last few miles they felt would be soon behind them. Frodo popped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Note that we don't get a transition here. We don't get... And then Frodo went and sat by the tree. Frodo propped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Sam and Pippin sat near. They began to hum, then to sing. Then they're getting louder. They're getting more boisterous. Are they drunk? Well, maybe. Maybe. But I'm not sure that that's the only explanation. They could simply also be restored. They could also be joyous. Princess Ostrich is asking in the YouTube chat, Oh no, did I miss the Pippin Mary Sam conspiracy reveal? You did not. It's coming next week on There and Back Again. Yes. <laughs> next week in the chapter entitled, in fact, A Conspiracy Revealed. Yes. 
Good, good. Justin Shadowfax says Mountain Dew for sure. It sure sounds like Mountain Dew, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emily says the uncertainty is what is chilling. We think it is the Black Riders because it's like the cry of an evil creature, but it could be something else because it is like the cry of some evil creature. I, I see that. I think you're right. But I think that by presenting, presenting exactly what we expect, Tolkien reinforces the idea that what we expect is correct. You're right that there is still ambiguity there. This may not be the Black Riders. This may be something else out here in the country. There could be some unknown malevolent force tracking Frodo at this point. But the idea of the unearthly cry, and also I should say too, just to, to show due deference and respect to Tolkien's complete mastery of his craft, the way that we move from the song, the way that we move back into prose with the repetition of ho, 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 louder this time, then we get the wail, and then we get silence. Nothing but the, nothing but the leaves rustling. That to me is, oh, I still get shivers reading this passage. I still get shivers. Yeah. Good. Um, we can, we, yes, we can definitely, um, Nikki asks an interesting question here. Um, at what age do you start drinking when you're a hobbit? Um, huh. Interesting. Early. I would imagine early. Uh, the exact kind of culture that we get, uh, in terms of the agrarian culture, is, is difficult to map to real history, but certainly if you look at most of the reference points for Hobbit culture in English history, you're looking at historical periods where children would have been given watered down beer, would have been given, you know, we, we brewed beer and we made booze in order to, you know, preserve us from just horrible diseases because that is one way of making water sanitary. So that is, that is an approach. Certainly I would suspect, I would expect most of the Hobbit children at the party to have had shandies, at least. Let's say that. Yeah. Good. Emily says, I can't imagine Hobbit's that long, the kind of eating or drinking for anyone. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Jackie says here, the black riders are so scary. You can hear them when you can't see them now. They're somewhere. They're there somewhere hunting you, creepy. And Rachel says, I think it has to be that. After all, they're still in the Shire and there's nothing else evil there, right? Though, at the same time, Frodo was wrong about the Shire. And we're going to talk a little about that later too. The, the sense that how can we be afflicted by these things when we're still in our Shire? To which Gilda replied, this is not your Shire. We'll talk a little more about that as we move on. Yeah. Um, from there though, we finally return. So, so here we are. Um, we've had our, our, our breakfast scene, if you like, where we've kind of woken up once again in the mundane world, once again in the natural world. The elves have gone, but they left their food behind. Then we're going to trudge across country. But then we're going to find elven cordial in our packs, and that's going to kind of move us. It's going to elevate us just a little, and then there's this unearthly cry, so that's going to elevate us a little. And of course, didn't mention the Black Rider watching on as they descended the bank earlier, so we know that they're there. We know that they're being hunted still, even though hobbits move all but silently at night. And it's worth noting, too, that the Black Rider did pick up their trail after they were, uh, after they were traveling with the elves. So something happened. Something definitely happened there. Good. Um, Yes, good, good. Okay. And then from there, we get to Mr. Maggot. We get to Farmer Maggot at long last. Good afternoon, Mr. Maggot, said Pippin. The farmer looked at him closely. Well, if it isn't Master Pippin, Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say, he cried, changing from a scowl to a grin. It's a long time since I saw you around here. It's lucky for you I know you. I was just going to set my dogs on any strangers. There's some funny things going on today. Of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times, too near the river, he said, shaking his head. But this fellow was the most outlandish I've ever set eyes on. He won't cross my land without leave a second time, not if I can stop it. 
What fellow do you mean? asked Pippin. Now you haven't seen him, said the farmer. He went up the lane toward the causeway not a long while back. He was a funny customer and asking funny questions. But perhaps you'll come inside and we'll pass the news more comfortably. I have a drop of good ale on tap if you and your friends are willing, Mr. Took. Farmer Maggot is fantastic. Farmer Maggot is the greatest. Farmer Maggot is just a good hobbit. And perhaps a little more than a good hobbit. Farmer Maggot, maybe, and I'm tempted to, to put a pin in this and come back to it when we're actually discussing Tom Bombadil, but we're going to have a lot to discuss when we're discussing Tom Bombadil, so we can kind of hit it now in advance. But Farmer Maggot is friends with Tom Bombadil, you guys. They spend time together. Tom Bombadil recognizes the goodness of Farmer Maggot, and that is critical, because we're seeing here another perspective on on what virtue is within the Shire, and by extension, what virtue is among the small folk of Middle-earth. Yeah. Uh, Fina says, Frodo certainly has a trauma relating to Farmer Maggot, a mushroom trauma, yes. And Jackie says, every hobbit thinks people from other parts are queer, but Maggot has the right idea here. Well, this is, this is an interesting question, right? Because here he says, uh, of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times too near the river, he said, shaking his head. Well, that's just that classic hobbit Insularity. You know, hobbits are suspicious of everyone, even other hobbits from other parts of the Shire, and certainly from hobbits near the river, if you know what I mean. They're all just a little weird down that way. But because Farmer Maggot is friends with Tom Bombadil, we have to kind of question, question his perspective on that. He is both... <sighs> there is a sense in which being exemplary, being the greatest version of your form kind of removes you from your context. If you are the greatest hobbit, then you are, in a sense, not even really a hobbit anymore. If you are the greatest dwarf, then you are, in a sense, not even really a dwarf anymore. You are, by virtue of your excellence, an outlier. And I certainly want to think about that as we move forward, because we are going to meet a number of characters who are briefly defined according to their race or occupation or, or fealty or whatever. We're going to get a number of characters who are briefly defined, but then act against the expectations that, that are attached to that definition by virtue of their excellence. Yeah. Um, good. Oh no, Kate Matt has just arrived. YouTube didn't notify you that we were starting. I'm so sorry. YouTube is, is terribly fickle, I'm afraid. Yes. Yeah. Chris says, I'm bracing myself for Tom Bombadil. He has been my least favorite part of the book, and I'm hoping for a fresh perspective. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping so too. Rebecca asks, is Farmer Maggot the most hard done by the movie adaptation? Um, yes. Farmer Maggot is perhaps the least well represented um, in the movie version. Though it's fair to say that Farmer Maggot also went through a number of different revisions during the writing of The Lord of the Rings. He wasn't always this guy. He wasn't always... Um, the Ur-Hobbit that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. He was, there were different versions of him that were more, I guess, in line with Frodo's expectation. Um, through the revision process, Farmer Maggot becomes just greater and gentler and more generous and more representative of the great virtues of the Shire, which is exactly what we should be doing right now. We want him to actually be, be great. We want him to just be a Hobbit. We want Frodo and the others to feel comfortable now because that gives us this jagged, inconstant, zigzag line toward adventure. You know, the, the graph of, of how comfortable Frodo feels versus how much danger he is in is, is this constant zigzag through the first part of the book and is, in some sense, is going to continue to be so. Yeah. Good, good. 
All right, let's push on and get his description here of what happened with the Atlantish fellow. Although I will say Atlantish in the sense, of course, a little play on words here from Tolkien. Atlantish does mean strange, but it means strange in the sense of a stranger. You are literally an outlander. You are literally someone who is not from here, and thus you are odd, not by virtue of your nature, though in this case probably by virtue of your nature too, but by virtue of your 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 foreignness. There is a... Yeah, a streak of, of oh, I don't want to say xenophobia. I don't think that's entirely true. But but I think that there is a certainly a streak of strong suspicion in the Hobbit heart, yes, or in Hobbit culture. Again, we're going to talk about that a little later. Um, yeah, Shane asks an interesting question before we get here. Is the reader supposed to look past the name Maggot and see him as a and see him as wise, like it's a translation thing? Maggot is a put down later in the books. It absolutely is, and this is another way in which the movies kind of serve him poorly. Um, yes. Farmer Maggot has always bothered me too. I don't think that it is. I don't think that it is meant as an insult. I don't think that it is meant as a joke. I do think that we are supposed to see the maggot as as something that is is humble, that is perhaps unappealing from a distance, something that is, you know, immediately less than engaging, but something which serves at the foundation a true and proper purpose. Maggots are, you know, important, I suppose, in the great scheme of things. So perhaps there's an argument to be made there. It is more likely, (laughs) though this is far and away the most specific version of this that I can think of, it may be the case, I haven't read anything about the, the, the origins of Farmer Maggot's name, and, and certainly it, it may be a holdover from when he was a less pleasant character. It could have started as a joke. It could have started as, as you know, he's supposed to be repulsive and thus this is his name. That may be the case. But it's also possible that this was just a word that Tolkien liked. And there are a few instances of this. As I mentioned before, in the earliest drafts of The Lord of the Rings, the prote- well, I guess in the earliest drafts of The Lord of the Rings, the protagonist was Bilbo again. But then in the second and third drafts of The Lord of the Rings, the, the protagonist was Bingo Baggins. Not because, you know, bingo is a joke word, but because it's actually completely compatible. If you think about the line of, you know, Bilbo and Bungo and so on back into history, it kind of makes a, a, a linguistic sense that Bilbo's son, as he was supposed to be, would have been called Bingo. But then we dropped Bingo and we moved to Frodo, and that's just much, much better. There's also, you know, Tyrion upon Tuna in, in the Silmarillion. There are moments in Tolkien's writing when he doesn't seem to care so much that a word has another meaning. He likes that it is, or isn't even aware that the word has another meaning. He likes the word itself and wields the word itself. So I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say that Farmer Maggot is a holdover joke from when he was a more repulsive character. Yeah. Okay. Entomologist says, yes, maggots are important, says Lauren. Good. Uh, Kate says, I assume the name Maggot was a holdover from when he was scary, but Jackie in the same thought says, I always just thought Maggot was a humble hobbit name. Yes. I mean, th- this is this is um, humility and and connection. That That's kind of... Um, elusive sense of oneself and one's place that we attribute to hobbits so freely, that's always important. Yes. Kate says, could have been worse, could have been Bimbo Baggins. If there's a porn adaptation, a porn parody of The Lord of the Rings, which God knows I'm sure that there is, someone's probably done that joke already, Kate. That doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me happy in my heart. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Let's keep going. All right. Good day to you, I says, going out to him. This lane don't, don't lead anywhere and wherever you may be going, your quickest way will be back to the road. I didn't like the looks of him, and when Grip came out, he took one sniff and let out a yelp as if he'd been stung. He put down his tail and bolted off howling. The black fellow sat quite still. 
I come from yonder, he said, slow and stiff-like, pointing back west over the fields, if you please. Have you seen Baggins? He asked in a queer voice and bent down toward me. I could not see any face, for his hood fell down so low, and I felt a sort of shiver down my back. But I did not see why he should come riding over my land so bold. Be off, I said. There are no Bagginses here. You're in the wrong part of the Shire. You'd better head back west to Orbiton. You can go by the road this time. Baggins has left, he answered in a whisper. He is coming. He is not far away. I wish to find him. If he passes, will you tell me I will come back with gold? No, you won't, I said. You'll go back where you belong double quick. I'll give you one minute before I call all my dogs. He gave a sort of hiss. I might have been la- it might have been laughing and it might not. Then he spurred his great horse right at me and I jumped out of the way just in time. I called the dogs, but he swung off and rode through the gate and up the lane toward the causeway like a boat of thunder. What do you think of that? Frodo sat for a moment looking at the fire but his only thought was how on earth would they reach the ferry? I don't know what to think, he said at last. Round two of Hobbits standing up to the Black Riders. Sure, old Ham Gamgee, he did a good job, but he didn't directly threaten the Black Rider the way that Farmer Maggot did. I love this. Farmer Maggot is infuriated that the Black Rider isn't obeying the the rules of social courtesy. He has ridden across his land without so much as an apology. He hasn't come down the road. He's ridden across the fields. And that is, to whatever degree there is private property in the Shire, that is private property. As Beck is calling out here, the hobbits are so confident in their ownership of the Shire. Yes, exactly right. Jackie says, so it's a causeway. Good thing Frodo, uh, Frodo and them cut across country. Yes, because it turns out that the road isn't just a road. They would have been very exposed with nowhere to go. We get a joke from Mary later about them tumbling off the causeway into, into the marish. Yes. Um, Lady Sorka says, black writers just don't know what to do with hobbits. And there are a couple of things here that, that, that really speak to that idea, Lady Sorka. I think you're absolutely right. Um, because, okay, Again, just as with Sam earlier in today's session, we have to wonder how precisely Farmer Maggot is recounting the words of the Black Rider. Because I come from yonder, he said, slow and stiff-like, pointing back west over my fields, if you please. Would a Black Rider say, I come from yonder? Does that feel true to our understanding of these characters? Does that feel as though it's a creation of Farmer Maggot? Or does it feel as though the Black Rider is putting on an act? That the Black Rider is trying to is trying to win over Farmer Maggot? I mean, we're going to get a more explicit version of that in just a second. But, but right here, I come from yonder. He's offering explanation, but it feels odd and ungainly, slow and stiff-like. Is all of his speech slow and stiff-like? Possibly. Or is that phrase in particular slow and stiff-like? Jackie says, yonder, haha, he learned that from someone in Hobbiton. Did he learn that from the gaffer? Did he learn that from Hamfast Gamgee? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. I like that, I like that explanation very, uh, very much. So then we get, uh, be off. I said, there are no Bagginses here. You're in the wrong part of the Shire. You'd better go back west to Hobbiton, but you can go by roads this time. All true. Everything that Farmer Maggot is saying at this point is true. To the best of his knowledge, there are no Bagginses here. Off you go. Baggins has left, he answered in a whisper. He is coming. He is not far away. I wish to find him. If he passes, will you tell me? I will come back with gold. This is not how you interact with hobbits. This is not how hobbit society functions. The Black Rider here is is clearly not in his you know, native role. The Black Rider is putting on an act here for the benefit of Farmer Maggot, but it is the worst. It is not good. It is not a good 
version of being a hobbit. Baggins has left. He is coming. He is not far away. I wish to find him. If he passes, will you tell me? I will come back with gold. Look, that might work on your dwarves. That might work even on your man. But an offer of gold isn't going to work on a hobbit, particularly not a hobbit who you have already insulted by crossing his fields. Farmer Maggot is not going to be swayed by this. Even Lobelia Sackville Baggins may hesitate here before accepting the offer of gold. Even Ted Sandiman might hesitate before offering, uh, before accepting this offer of gold from the Black Rider. No, you won't, says Farmer Maggot. You'll go back where you belong, double quick. I give you one minute before I call all my dogs. The brilliant hubris, the, the brilliant confidence, the overwhelming sense of, of right that, that accompanies this threat I will give you one minute before I call all my dogs. And then you're, you're going to be in trouble, Black Rider. Mr. Black Rider, you're done. Yeah. Lauren says, again, I have to ask why the writer is trying to hide or bribe. Why not threaten? You're a terrifying apparition with no face. And it is worth pointing out that, um, again, we have reference to, to someone being unable to see the Ringwraith's face. Again, because the hood is low and because he can't say, and this may just be mystery, or it may be that the ringwraith itself is invisible. The Nazgul itself is invisible. Yeah. Excellent. So why is the Black Rider doing this? Well, we don't really get an account, honestly. Um, and certainly it does seem as though there's a certain evolution of the Black Riders in the course of the narrative. By the time we meet the Nazgul at the end of the story, by the time we return to the Nazgul at the end of the story, they're going to be pretty different than they are right now. And in part, we might credit that to Sauron's ascension, you know, his, his, his gaining of power, his, his restoration of power, I suppose, does seem to empower his servants, his minions. So it's possible that as yet, Sauron is not sufficiently powerful to, to imbue the Black Riders with their full wrath and malevolence. But I don't know about that. Rather, I think there are two things happening. The first is the power of the Shire. I think that the Shire has a power against the Nazgul. They are less here than they would otherwise be. They draw, as, as all the servants of Sauron do, they draw on fear and desolation and, and desperation. They draw on these negative emotions and seem to, in some sense, gain power by them. And of course, in that sense, we might think back to Smaug. We might think back to the, the greed and the selfishness and the, the insularism that, that lures the dragon, you know? Um, so it may be that, that there's some power here in the Shire, but I also wonder to what degree Sauron's instructions were simple. Go out into the world, find the Shire, find Baggins, get me my ring. But... It's still early. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't cross any lines. Because the last thing in the world I want is for the rumors of my rising, for the rumors of the shadow gathering in the East to be confirmed. I don't really need the White Council coming down and kicking your ass. Like, that would be pretty bad for me right now. I'm going to need you later. So if you could just, you know, be cool for five seconds. I wonder to what degree there was some kind of instruction there. Because, lest we forget, this Black Rider has had presumably hundreds of these conversations, all the way from Mordor, all the way to the Shire. This is not his first rodeo. He has had to do this a lot, and he's bad at it. But at the same time, good enough at it that he has found the Shire, and he is awfully, perilously close to Baggins. Yeah. Yes, as Jackie says, the Sauron doesn't want the wise to know. Yes, I wonder that. Good. Good. Um, 
Oh, and this was following up. I think the Nazgul are still amassing their old strength. The shadow hasn't spread far enough to sustain them. This question of the shadow spreading, I find really interesting because you're right, I think. I think you're right twice over, Jackie. I think that the shadow hasn't yet spread far enough to sustain them, but also there is a light within the Shire that that robs the shadow of its power. I think that there is an innate goodness and civility and virtue within the Shire that would resist the, the influence of the shadow anyway. So it's possible that even if Sauron were at the peak of his power, even if the shadow were as, as inky and as deep as it could ever be, and it had spread out across the, the wild and across the West, if it had consumed Gondor and Rohan, if it had consumed Lothlorien and even Rivendell, I can still imagine the Shire being something of a bastion, being something of, of a light against the dark in those dim final days. Now, that is not to say that it would triumph. The Shire would fall as everywhere else on Middle-earth would fall. But I do think that there's a light here that remains. And there is a light, it may be said, that never goes out. Yes. Uh, Emily is asking, what is Sauron? Man, wizard, elf, something else? Lauren replies, something else, which is, I guess, the easiest answer to that question. Stick around, Lauren, for tomorrow's pre-recorded lecture. I'm going to release, as I've been promising for a while now, a little um, listener Q&A, little background material, little chat about the Silmarillion, you know, just a little, uh, a little um, addendum to our ongoing discussions of the Lord of the Rings. And one of the things that I'm going to discuss is basically the, the hierarchy of peoples within Middle-earth. And I'll be talking about uh, what Sauron is, what Gandalf is, what the elves are exactly. And we're going to be talking a little, a little about... Uh, Ale and Yvonne and the creation of the dwarves. We're going to be talking a little about Varda. We're going to be talking a little about Elbereth Gilthoniel. We'll be talking about the importance of light and stars and the West and trees and all of these great and wonderful things. And of course, I'll probably give a gloss of, of the Silmarils too. I think we should probably talk about that. Yes. Um, yes, good. Maya calls out Princess Ostrich. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, it, it's still complicated. Even if you know what he is, it's still complicated. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, good, good. Okay. Gosh, I'm running so much longer. <laughs> I can't wait for the elves, sir, says Becca Ellen. <laughs> now I want, a okay, this is the t-shirt. This is the t-shirt we're going to get for there and back again. It is just going to be a, a there and back again t-shirt with maybe I'll put the, the little typographic there and back again logo on the back or something at the nape of the neck. But on the front, it's just going to say in perfect script font, elves, sir, exclamation point. I want that. I want that very much. All right, let's keep pushing on because uh, I guess I only have, um, yes, I only have one more slide from this chapter because what happens is that, that Farmer Maggot offers to assist Frodo and, and take him to the Bucklebury Ferry. He's going to put him in his wagon. We just get this, it, it's, it's lovely. It's warm, it is, to call back the idea that I was just discussing, it is suffused with the light of civility and goodness and kindness and charity. Farmer Maggot is a standout hobbit. He absolutely is. And he takes Frodo and the others all the way to Bucklebury Ferry, and then we get a little bit of misdirection as a dark shadow approaches. Hello there, called Farmer Maggot. The advancing hoof stopped short. They thought they could dimly guess a dark cloaked shape in the mist a yard or two ahead. Now then, said the farmer, throwing the reins to Sam and striding forward, don't you come a step nearer. What do you want and where are you going? I want Mr. Baggins. Have you seen him? Said a muffled voice. But the voice was the voice of Mary Brandybuck. A dark lantern was uncovered and its light fell on the astonished face of the farmer. Mr. Mary, he cried. Yes, of course. Who did you think it was? Said Mary, coming forward. As he came out of the mist and their fears subsided, he seemed suddenly to diminish to ordinary hobbit size. He was riding a pony, and a scarf was swathed around his neck and over his chin to keep out the fog. 
Frodo sprang out of the wagon to greet him. So here you are at last, said Mary. I was beginning to wonder if you would turn up at all today. I was just going back to supper. When it grew foggy, I came across and rode up towards Stock to see if you'd fallen in any ditches. But I'm blessed I'm blessed if I know, excuse me, but I'm blessed if I know which way you've come. Where did you find them, Mr. Maggot? In your duck pond? No, I caught them trespassing, said the farmer. I nearly set my dogs on them. But they'll tell you all the story. I've no doubt. And if you'll excuse me, Mr. Mary and Mr. Frodo and all, I best be turning for home. Mrs. Maggot will be worritin' the night, will be worritin' with the night getting thick. Our introduction, our, our real, I guess, primary introduction to Marietic Brandybuck, to Mary, who is going to accompany us on the journey forward. Fear, as Nikki says in the YouTube chat rather beautifully, fear makes everything seem bigger and worse. Yes, and Diane is calling out, Mary, the most capable and practical hobbit. Yes. <laughs> it is a really nice pull. And again, okay. Jackie, I'm putting a pin in that thought because we're going to talk about it in just a second. Um, Jackie says, I'm worried about Maggot getting home too. Yes. Yes, it's pretty terrifying. I want to track, though, again, this, this jagged zigzag line of tension because first we have our, our warmth and community at, at Farmer Maggot's house. Then the shadow falls over Frodo and he's, he's fretting about how to get to the ferry. But then Farmer Maggot offers him help and, and things seem to get easier and they go out on the road. But it's frightening. It's terrifying. It's not what they wanted. There is mist. There is high mist. And then the final reveal of the Black Rider here being Mary is another restoration of civility. It's another restoration of, of the understood world, if you like. It works really rather beautifully. Um, so Farmer Maggot. I'm hopeful that Farmer Maggot makes it home. I see no reason to believe that Farmer Maggot doesn't make it home. It doesn't seem as though the Black Riders are going to choose this moment to start slaughtering hobbits uh, randomly. And again, distinction here between the book and the movies. I don't feel as though the Black Riders are a physical threat to Farmer Maggot because he's just not interesting enough. I mean, we may also be fearful for, for you know, Ham Gamgee back in, back in, uh, back in Hobbiton, but I, I think that the Black Riders are probably pretty fine. But... I can't quite shake a fear for Farmer Maggot. I kind of wish that we'd had a beat with Farmer Maggot right at the end of the book where he could have said, you know, and it turned out that everything was fine and my, my mushroom crop has never been better and I'm doing just great. It would have been lovely if we'd had some moment like that, but we don't. So, yes, yes. Um, Yes. Uh, to, uh, oh gosh. Uh, Tamara, Tamara, Rebecca, Tamara, Rebecca, I guess might be your YouTube name. Mary is a huge difference between the film and source representation. Yeah. Both Mary and Pippin get a bit of a, a bit of a tough shake here um, in the adaptation, which I understand. And it's interesting that we should have expected the treatment that we got of the dwarves in the Hobbit trilogy from the treatment that we got of Merry and Pippin in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, because Merry and Pippin have to be distinguished. They are, to casual readers of the book, kind of interchangeable. They're kind of the same character. And when they're together through much of the two towers, uh, together alone through much of the two towers, it can feel as though we've just got kind of two versions of the same character wandering around. So Peter Jackson made the decision in the, the movie adaptation to, to differentiate them, to give them new character traits. More character traits, certainly, certainly many, many more character traits. Yes, and and to to separate them a little bit. I like Marion Pippin from the movie versions. I do. Um, they're not my Marion Pippin. I suppose is where I am. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Okay. Oh, and we're already talking about Gimli. Yes, Tamar. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Rebecca Tamar. Thank you very much for that. I, I love clarifications like that because I'm terrible at pronouncing people's names, as Ramalosh can tell you here in the YouTube chat. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So that is going to do it for our coverage of uh, chapter four, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. Um, Farmer Maggot finally puts them on the ferry with the little basket of mushrooms from his wife, which is just a lovely gesture. It's, it's just, I like that very much, you guys. I like that very much. But we do have a couple of quick things to discuss before we... See, we're already anticipating it here. Lady Sorka says, well, they are close cousins, talking of Mary and Pippin. This is actually our first question that we're going to get to, because I had a question that came from Thomas, who said, I would be a bad hobbit because I have trouble keeping the family trees straight in the Shire. Who are Mary and Pippin to Frodo? Okay, let us begin by clarifying first the relationship between Bilbo and Frodo, because Frodo is referred to as Bilbo's nephew throughout the Fellowship of the Ring, and that is not true. He is not, technically speaking, Bilbo's nephew. Bilbo is the son of Bungo Baggins and Belladonna Took, as we discussed from The Hobbit. Uh, Bungo Baggins was the son of Mungo Baggins and Laura Grubb. Mungo Baggins, Bilbo's grandfather, therefore, okay, so this is, this is, <laughs> Mungo is Bilbo's grandfather. That's all we need to know. He had two sisters, Lily and Pansy. They are not important. And two brothers, Largo Baggins, the brother of Mungo Baggins. This is the brother of Bilbo's grandfather, married Tanta Hornblower and had a son named Fosco, who had a son named Drogo, who married Primula Brandybuck and had a son named Frodo. Ponto Baggins, the other brother, married the, the fabulous name. Okay, all of these names are great. Ponto Baggins married Mimosa Bunce. Mimosa Bunce, ladies and gentlemen. That might even beat Belladonna Tuck in terms of, of the fabulousness of names. Um, Ponto uh, marries Mimosa Bunce. They have a daughter, Rosa, who married Hildegrim Took, had a son named Aldegrim, who in turn had a son, Paladin, and a daughter, Esmeralda. Paladin Took's son is Peregrine, known as Pippin. Esmeralda Took's son, uh, Esmeralda married a Brandybuck, rather, uh, and, and had her first son, Mariatic, known as Mary. So all of that is to say, Mary and Pippin are actual cousins. Their parents are brother and sister. Okay? Piece of cake. Mary and Pippin, actually cousins. Frodo's relationship with Bilbo, with Mary, and with Pippin is weirdly exactly the same relationship. Frodo is second cousins once removed from Bilbo, Mary, and Pippin. Bilbo's great-grandfather, okay, <laughs> Bilbo's great-grandfather, Frodo's great-great-grandfather, and Mary and Pippin's great-great-great-grandfather are all the same person. That is Balbo Baggins, who married Barilla Boffin. So the relationships are thus. Mary and Pippin are actually cousins. Frodo is second cousins once removed from both of them. That's how that works. <laughs> Genealogy is fun, you guys. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, uh, Mimosa is, is a flower too, says Kate. Yes. Um, Yes, as, as we're trying, Lily and Pansy and Mimosa. Yes, of course. I mean, Mimosa has a, has a, a better sense now, for, or a, a better sense. Yeah, you know what? A better sense now for, for most of us. Um, but yes. Uh, Kevin says, Hobbit genealogy is way too complex for my brain. Yes. No, Sambuka Baggins, the drunk, says Diane. I like that very much. Yes. <laughs> Great. Good, good. Yeah, no, it's very, very complicated. All you need to know, all you need to know for practical purposes is that uh, Mary and Pippin are actually cousins and also best friends. They are, they are just, they are tight. Mary and Pippin are good, actual cousins. Frodo is family, but he is more distantly related. Second cousins once removed. He is once removed one way. He's, he's removed a generation up from Pippin and Mary and removed a generation down from Bilbo, of course, but the relationship is roughly the same. Yeah. All of which tells you, of course, that the Baggins, the Tooks, and the Brandybucks intermarry pretty freely throughout. I think it's also true that 
Frodo and Merry and Pippin are also the second cousins once removed, but I think they're also third cousins through another kind of spur of the family tree. But, you know, this is why an obsession with genealogy is such a hobbitish trait. Yes. Cousins just covers everything, says Angela Lurie. Yes, you're absolutely right. Good. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Caroline asks, do you think that Tolkien modeled the Shire on Great Britain? Um, more specifically on England. Yes. Um, the Shire is specifically, is is consciously a recreation of this quasi-mythical, quasi-legendary kind of, of, of utopian idyll of the English countryside. The Shire does represent, or, hmm, okay, let me be careful with this. The Shire, as it was originally conceived, represented England. The Shire was, this was literally supposed to be the ancient mythology of our world. The stories of the Shire were, were literally supposed to be the ancient stories of, of England. And it was supposed to be a, a, a unique mythology for, for England because England doesn't have a unique mythology. It, it doesn't, uh, it didn't have an emergent mythology in the same way that so many other countries have. So that was Tolkien's initial, initial concept. Of course, his commitment to a secondary creation was such that as the books evolved, as he invested more and more time and energy and creativity into the Lord of the Rings, that became less true. This is, by this point, pretty much no longer an, an accounting of our own ancient world. So it isn't fair to say at that point that the Shire is representative of, is analogous to England. But it is still fair to say, I think, that the virtues embodied by the Shire, the things that make the Shire good, are, Tolkien believed, the things that make England good too. So while they are not one and the same anymore by, by the time that we're reading The Lord of the Rings, they are still compatible in virtue, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gildarts Winter says, you heard it here first, folks. The people of England are hobbits. Well, no, the people of England are men. Hobbits used to, used to own the Shire, but by, the, the, by the, the coming of modern man, we transplanted hobbits and we kind of forced them deeper into the forest with, with the elms and so on and so forth. So, yes, it's not to say that, that, that the people who currently live in England are descended of hobbits. They are still de descended of men, but the hobbits were there first. Yes. Um, let me see. Lauren says, as someone who grew up close to my second cousin's cousin does cover everything. Yes, yes. Good. Okay, let me, uh, let me pick up here with my second question that I got out of speaking about the Shire. Gosh, all of this is it. I'm getting handed perfect, perfect segues here as I move through the, the Q&A portion of today's lecture. The Shire and, um, and its, its seclusion, the Shire and its isolationism, the Shire and its insularism, the Shire and, and its, its removal, its, its discontinuity with the world around it is a, a fascinating topic of conversation. And I received this question from June, um, who kind of really put her finger on it, I think. In what way can the Shire be truly idyllic if it is protected and imperfect? It isn't powerful, but it is protected by powerful people. Is the Shire all it seems to be? Is the Shire really utopian? And this is such a complicated question, such a, such a wonderful question. And it is perfect that we address this now because, as I said, of this, this jagged progression toward adventure that we've seen from Frodo and the other hobbits over the course of the last, I guess, the last two chapters and next week's chapter two to a certain degree before we finally leave the Shire behind. And it is interesting to think about the ways in which the Shire's seclusion from the world, the ways in which the Shire is protected, influence Shire culture for good and for ill. On the one hand, it is safe. It is 
idyllic in the sense that that it is untroubled. It is idyllic in the sense that it is pastoral and and agrarian and and comfortable. That it seems fairly if you if you take as as read the class distinction, it seems fairly just. There is no poverty, there is no crime, there is no violence, little or no poverty, little or no crime, little or no violence. I mean, the worst crime that we get in the, in the course of the book to date is, is the, the pilfering of some silver teaspoons from Lobelia Sackville Baggins. And Lobelia Sackville Baggins actually stands apart as pretty much the worst, whoops, excuse me for hitting my microphone, pretty much the worst villain that we've seen in the book to this point. Um, and her villainy is of such a, a domestic and genteel sort. She's just kind of rude and a little greedy, and that's pretty much it. Lobelia Sackville-Baggins doesn't really rate as a villain at all. I think of some of the, some of the, the downsides to the Shire's insularism. Um, because being cut off from the world removes from your context. And when you are devoid of context, you have to kind of create your own internal context, which leads, I think, to this suspicion of other people from other parts of the Shire. You know, the hobbits by the river are not to be trusted, but I'm sure they speak exactly the same way about the hobbits of Hobbiton. And the hobbits in the West Far, I think, well, they're, they're all weird and, and mickle delving hobbits, so you can't trust them as far as you can throw them, and so on and so on and so forth. And we get hints of this, you know, the stranger from mickle delving who shows up in the first chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring who's sitting in the bar with, with, uh, with the gaffer is just uh, he is a stranger he is different he is outlandish in that sense even though he is a hobbit of the shire and he comes from maybe 15 miles away it's still uh, what we're seeing here in in the insularism of the shire we are seeing a, a kind of a consequent insularism in each individual hobbit community Hobbits don't look outward, they look inward. And we're beginning to feel, I think, by this point in, in the history of the Shire, as though we're as though we're kind of fracturing Hobbit society. That there really is, for all that we talk about the Shire, there really isn't a sense of the Shire as a place. It doesn't really have a I mean, well, actually, this is interesting. It's just now occurring to me that some hobbits do talk about the Shire. But those hobbits are the hobbits who are looking out. Bilbo talks about the Shire. Frodo talks about the Shire. We're going to have reference to the Shire later from Pippin and Mary and from Sam even. But all of those hobbits are looking outward. We don't generally have a sense of the Shire from the hobbits who are within the Shire. Because what, what does that even mean? We have a sense of Hobbiton, where all the, the right and upstanding hobbits live. Not like those weird hobbits who live by the water or those hobbits who live literally anywhere else except from right here, thank you very much. And I'm sure that we can refine that down so that the hobbits who live on Bagshot Row are suspicious of the hobbits who live on some other street on the other side of the, uh, the, other side of the stream there, you know? That, that this insularism fractures society. It fractures community. So in what sense is the Shire idyllic? Well, the Shire can only be idyllic in its broader context. It, it can only be utopian almost in its broader context. Um, let me catch up on the YouTube channel here. Yes. Um, <laughs> Justin Shadowfax says, I'm back, guys. Sorry, I had to climb a eucalyptus. Not many of those in Middle Earth as far as I know. Uh, I, th I think we're going to need a little more information from you, Justin, on, on, on why? On why? Why did you climb a eucalyptus? Let's maybe do that. Oh, Save Girl 309 is recommending Peter Hollands. This is so good. Uh, definitely look up the YouTube videos, The Hobbit Drinking Medley by Peter Hollands and The Hobbit Parody by The Hollywood Show. They're both so good. Yes, you can find both of those on, on YouTube. Excellent. And of course, because I don't think I've mentioned it during a live show, but you should definitely go and check out um, um, the uh, Lord of the Rings song by Flight of the Concords, which is just magnificent. Yes. Um, 
Uh, Kate says the Shire is like a native village purposely left uncontacted by anthropologists. That's that's really interesting. Except, of course, that that all of the cultures surrounding the Shire are actually older than the Shire. The Shire itself is fairly new. Um, in Shire Reckoning, we're only, uh, what is it, 1,400 years in? So, so the Shire has not actually been around for that long. But yes, yes, good. Spoon stealer, clarifies Shane Diener. Not, not a pilferer of spoons, a stealer of spoons, yes. Um, Angela asks, are the rangers protecting the Shire anyway, or did Gandalf ask them to? Um, not specifically Gandalf, uh, but certainly the rangers are taking, not instruction, I suppose, but from the White Council. There is an understanding in the forces of, of good and light that the Shire must be protected. Um, yes, that, that is definitely happening. So what I wanted to do, though, was take a look at um, a slide from last week's reading, because this clarifies where we end up, I think, in terms of our understanding of what the Shire is, both for good and ill. This is from Frodo's conversation with Gilder. I cannot imagine what information could be more terrifying than your hints and warnings, exclaimed Frodo. I knew that danger lay ahead, of course, but I did not expect to meet it in our own Shire. Can't a hobbit walk from the water to the river in peace? But it is not your own Shire, said Gildor. Others dwelt here before hobbits were, and others will dwell here again when hobbits are no more. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. You can protect the Shire. You hobbits can protect the Shire. You can define the Shire. You can preserve the Shire, but you can't keep the world out. So in what sense are you protecting the Shire? In what sense is your fence effective? Well, if you can't keep the world out, the only thing that a fence can do, metaphorically speaking, is keep the hobbits in. By fencing yourselves in, you are dooming yourselves to become smaller. You are dooming yourselves to become more insular and less... I was going to say important, but important is a difficult word there. Less open to the world. You will be diminished by your insularism in a way that is distinct from the, the kind of diminishment that we've seen in the other cultures of Middle-earth. You will be made less by it. The hobbits who look outward, the hobbits who have a sense of the Shire in its greater context, look on the Shire differently. And of course, this happens to Frodo in the course of the book. We're told how frustrated he is with the Shire. We're told, and I say in the course of the book, what I mean is in the course of the first two chapters, we're told how frustrated he is with the Shire. We're told that, that you know, he has the run-in with Lobelia Sackville, Sackville Baggins, and he's tired of, of, of gossip and rumor and, and all of these tiresome small town things that he's experiencing. But when it comes down to it, when he's talking to Gandalf, he says, I have often thought the Shire tiresome and thought that it could benefit from an invasion of dragons, but I would like to save it if I could. And that, this is when he's talking about being out in the wild world, out in the wide world. If he knows that the Shire exists somewhere behind him, he has a firm place to stand. And that is the virtue of the Shire, not as a community separated from the rest of the world, but as as a foundation to the rest of the world, as a point of reference for the rest of the world. The Shire exists idyllically, not because it is protected. That is not what makes the Shire important. The Shire is being protected as a means of necessity right now. It is, it is necessary that the agents of Sauron do not infiltrate the Shire. But in part, that's necessary because the Shire is so important, because it is pure, because, and, and not just for Frodo, but I mean, I wonder if Gandalf feels the same way. When Gandalf is, is racing across the Misty Mountains or is, is fighting goblins in the shadow of the Lonely Mountain, 
is he thinking of the Shire? Is he remembering that he too has a firm place to stand, that there is goodness and light in the world? Perhaps. And it seems to me finally that there isn't actually a tension between... <laughs> Do we feel bad about the Shire because the Shire is not taking care of itself? Do we feel bad about the Shire because the Shire is not protecting its own borders? Because the Shire is actually kind of laughably protecting its own borders with the bounders. The Bounders, of course, couldn't protect the Shire from anything. The Bounders don't protect the Shire from the Black Rider. In fairness, nor do the Rangers, who are also protecting the Shire. But the Rangers are doing the real work protecting the Shire from intrusion, from, from I presume, banditry and, and, and roguery, as well as the forces of, of Sauron. The Rangers are protecting the Shire. Do we feel bad about that, that incompatibility, that, that power is being extended to protect powerlessness, but the Shire, the Shire finds virtue in powerlessness? Well, no, we don't, because that is what power is for. And we see echoes of this throughout the entire run, throughout the entire Legendarium. We will see echoes of this. Power is best used when it is used to protect those who do not have power. This is true of Bilbo using his magic ring to help the dwarves. We will get from Faramir later in the Two Towers. I don't generally throw forward like this, but this is, this is such an iconic line that I'm sure that you have all already heard it, even if you don't know where it comes from in the book. But Faramir says, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. It is right and just that power whatever form that power takes, be used in the defense of the powerless. So the protection of the Shire is virtuous both for the rangers themselves who are, and, and for Gandalf and for the White Council and for ultimately, you know, the men of Rohan and the men of Gondor and, and the elves of Rivendell and Lothlorien and the dwarves. Everyone who is acting to protect the Shire directly or indirectly is doing a good thing. And the Shire, by remaining powerless under that protection, is also doing a good thing. This is what they are supposed to be doing. This is how they best embody their virtue. So long story short, I suppose, um, there is a tension between the Shire's virtue and its seclusion. The Shire is not virtuous because it is secluded. The Shire is not virtuous because even it is protected. The Shire is virtuous only in the context of the broader world. Um, Caroline says, it seems to me that Sauron and his allies don't think the Shire is that important. Well, crucial important until they got their hands on Gollum, who gave them two words and Shire. Yes. Now he's much more interested. As Gandalf says to Frodo um, back in chapter two, he didn't care about hobbits, but now he cares They're most things, in fact, but because conquering this light this would be all the more important. Yes, says Angela Lurie. Yes, exactly, exactly. Sina <laughs> uh, says, it is a truth universally acknowledged that any hobbit in possession of good food must be in want of more food. Fair, definitely fair. Though, this is one of the frustrating things. I, I've made a few casual remarks about um, about uh, the Harvard Lampoon and that style of parody before. Their parody of The Lord of the Rings is one of the worst things I have ever read. It is one of the, the most interminable pieces of parody that I have ever read in my life. And it is primarily because of its lack of specificity. 
One of the things that the Harvard Lampoon, one of the traps that they fall into so often in their writing, but particularly with regard to the Lord of the Rings, is that they fall into a simple misunderstanding of what is on the page. They lack sufficient clarity of what it is that Tolkien is actually saying. Hobbits are not gluttonous. Hobbits will not eat as as certain dwarves of our acquaintance have been known to. They will not eat to, to you know, gross excess. He's not, uh, hobbits are not are not greedy in that sense. They love food, but they love it appropriately. They love it justly. They love it wisely, almost. They love it for what it is and enjoy it for what it is and enjoy, you know, Elvin Cordial too for what it is. They're not simply just greedy. So I'm getting off the track here, but yes, yes. I'm terribly sorry. We appear to be having um, we appear to be having technical problems here with the stream. Um, you know what? This is actually a good point to wrap it up. So yes, I do have some thoughts on the wizards, but in fact, the thoughts on the wizards could better be contained in tomorrow's. So I think what we'll do, since I'm having technical trouble here, is is wrap this up, and I will put up this slide in the hope that you can see it. I can't guarantee for sure that you can, but hey, let's see what we can do. The next session, tomorrow, we're going to get the listener email and Q&A session. This isn't going to be a live session. This is just going to be pre-recorded. This is just going to appear in your podcast feeds, and you can listen to me talk serenely for, I don't know, a half hour, 40 minutes, something like that. That's going to pop up at noon-ish tomorrow, Friday, June 2nd. Then next week, as the eagle-eared among you will have discerned, there isn't going to be a live session next week. I am taking next week off from live sessions, he said, clarifying carefully. I'm not actually taking next week off, off, but there are other things that demand my attention. I've got to go and rebuild the website and, and take care of a bunch of technical stuff that has been left fallow over the course of the last few weeks. So I'm going to take care of that next week. There will be a couple of things coming out from Point North, but not that much. No live sessions next week. So we will come back on Thursday, June the 15th, which coincidentally is my birthday. We'll be coming back on my birthday at 4 p.m. Eastern to look at the fifth and sixth chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring, A Conspiracy Unmasked and the old forest. So that is our schedule going forward. I'm going to, uh, yes, uh, time to vanquish the tech dragons, says Angela. Yes, I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, take care of some of this and, and update my entire broadcast platform next week. So hopefully we'll be able to lay some of these uh, technical dragons to rest. Finally, finally, finally. That will do it, though, I think, for this week's session of There and Back Again. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me. It has been, as it always is, a great discussion. Um, I will be back, as I said, tomorrow with the, the live Q&A, uh, the not live, excuse me, with the listener email Q&A, general conversations about the Silmarillion podcast. That should be a lot of fun. And then in two weeks today, we will talk about A Conspiracy Unmasked and The Old Forest. Thank you all so much for being with me. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care.